0: podcastle 229 for october 9th 2012 the tonsor sun by michael john grist rated r for violence including some gore hello and welcome back to podcastle i'm dave thompson and i hate shaving Seriously, and I know this is very insensitive of me, considering how often a lot of women shave other parts of their body, but I just hate it. Now that I'm a dad, though, well, I still hate it. But it's a little bit easier when my son asks, Daddy shave? And if I say no, he says, No kisses! My daughter also loves to shave with me, and I'm talking about shaving her face. Not that I'm raising a bearded woman in training, mind you, but she likes to lather her face up and then shave it off with a razorless blade with me at her side. So yeah, shaving is a lot more tolerable these days. Uh, Something of a necessity, I guess, at least if I want to get kisses from my kids. A thing I can almost enjoy now doing no small part to my children. This week's story is all about shaving, as a family prospect. Podcastle's very proud to present The Tauncer Son, by Michael John Grist. This one was originally published. Hey, look at that. It's a Podcastle original. Now, I mentioned that last week's story, The Terror of Blue John Gap, was possibly our scariest story this October, and I think I stand by that. Today's story is, well... I don't think it's the most violent that will feature this month, but it's maybe the most gruesome in some aspects, and it is violent and totally quirky. A bit like a Coen Brothers film, really. Michael John Grist is a science fiction and fantasy author and ruins photographer who lives in Tokyo, Japan. His stories have been published in Clark's World and Beneath Ceaseless Skies, and he is currently writing an epic fantasy novel. He runs a website on the ruins of Japan filled with photographs of abandoned theme parks, military bases, and ghost towns. See more at michaeljohngrist.com or follow him on Twitter at michaelgrist. After dousing 30-something thieves and hot oil a few months back and Alibaba and the 40 Thieves, we felt like Steve would have the necessary chops and a lot of fun with this mad little tale too. Hopefully we're not typecasting him though have to send him something super sensitive next time. But I doubt anyone out there is going to ask him for a haircut or a shave anytime soon. Or a hot oil massage. So, shaving and a haircut, uh, how many bits is that again? Well, whatever it is, enjoy the story.
1: The Tonsor's Son by Michael John Grist I knew from the moment I saw him that his beard was full of evil. He walked into my shop, carrying a copper-hilted cane, clopping its burnished tip smartly on the hair-strewn tonsury floor with his every step. He wore camel-hide gloves with the hair turned inwards, so his hands seemed a milky mother-of-pearl white, as though agapornic. His eyes were a sharp hazel-brown, intelligent, intent upon the tonsury around him, absorbing the details, finally settling on me. He walked flush up to me, busy as I was, sweeping lopped brown locks into a scuttle, and smiled tightly, extending one of those sickeningly pale hands towards me. His thinly sliced mustache bristled as his upper lip curled back, and I knew the evil was in there, too, peering out at me from each follicle end. I could feel the waft of his past deeds emanating from the light down of his cheeks. He had sliced into men's bellies and woven clothes from their bloody organs. He had flayed living skin to fold origami cranes. The burr of all those screaming souls called up at me from his black and white flecked beard. The reek of it was sweet as sassafras, but punctured by the underlying taint of the midden. I could feel little lumps of misery clinging to each of those stubbly hairs like red dew on a battlefield corpse, invisible, indistinct, but vibrating with the echo of loss. He was smiling. He laid one hand on the back of my tonsuring chair, his long pale fingers like blind earthy roots against the dyed leather, and spoke. I hear you give a very close shave, he said. His voice was not evil, his voice was sonorant, full-throated like a warbling lark, as though he had thick curds of whey lodged comfortably deep in his windpipe. His eyes were neither evil, rather they gleamed with amusement, with distinction, and I felt I saw in them the reflections of an endless counting-house, rooms full of scriveners, back-bent over mounds of crumply paper, digging as though to find diamonds." In his dress I saw no evil, a double-breasted grey flannel apple-dare suit fitted with quillion strips and pleated sharply, pressed with steaming iron. His upper pocket aligned as smartly as a sextant with a triangle of pure white kerchief. About his wrist was a heavy brass-cased chronograph, the same sported in the cities of the continent. His shoes were perfect black, polished to reflect my face glancing down at them, to reflect the ceiling.' There was no evil in them. But in his beard there was, and he was smiling at me through it yet. Have you completed your assessment, ton sir? he asked, his upper lip wrinkled in amusement. Forgive me, Lord, I said, knuckling my brow as the first beads of sweat sallied down my back. I meant no offense, only curiosity. The likes of yourself, sir, a fine gentleman as you are, do not often grace my little shop. The gentleman smiled warmly, generously, as though he were the host and I the supplicant come begging with my scalp in my hands. "'They spoke highly of you at Verdini's opera,' he said. "'I heard the Viceroy of Samarkand himself has his enlisted men visit you before they depart for the war.' I nodded. "'It is so, sir. We are fortunate the Viceroy has graced us with his patronage of a year.' Come, come, you must be less modest, warbled the man. I hear you strop the knives of the Rillingham Palace Barbicans themselves. Such is your fame with a tonsuring blade. I see your hollow grind athwart of the corner there. Is it corundum? I nodded. His lordship knows blades. His taut smile became a broad grin, and he swung the end tip of his cane up, caught it in his left hand, and held the length of it out for a moment, as though proffering a gift. Then, in one smooth movement, he desquamated the copper cane scabbard and drew out a rapier of wick-thin silver. The ringing sound of the steel swelled the air majestically. He proffered the blade for my inspection. Bought it in Thrace, you know, he said, and winked. It's seen its share of tonseri, if you know what I mean. I did. In his beard I saw it, shingling little children in the streets of Amapotame, peeling back the dark skin of Abindian men like potato jackets in a scullery maid's practiced hand. I held out my hands meekly. Would his lordship have it ground here? He laughed then, scabbarded the blade in its cane, and slapped a pale-gloved hand on my shoulder. My good fellow, no, such steel as this needs the hand of the queen's regent. Rather, I have come for that shave, as I heard it in the opera and all about town. Would you oblige? I nodded. Of course I would. His beard demanded it. There are six angles to grind a blade, and I have studied and learned them all. I have ground with Vesuvic pumice, with corundum, with limey marble, with oblate tune, I have polished with tinctures of jeweler's rouge and steam baths of green chromium oxide. I have worked on copper and steel, on iron and tungsten, on cobalt and shimmering manganese. I have stropped and honed and planed at all the angles there are. Until, at last, I found the Seventh... The gentleman settled into the soft leather chair with an undulant sigh. I was sure I felt the curds in his throat flapping with the sound. A shave, then, he beamed at me from the mirror. As close as you can, for I've dinings with society men tonight. I took his meaning clearly as I leaned in over that scalp of glistening pomade. I read it in the weave of his throat hairs. Tonight was revelry, the only sort he could enjoy. I held up my switchback razor, ran my thickened thumbnail across the tip. The metal had rolled in two places on my last customer's neck. Jackalby, I called. My son was squatted beyond the corundum grindstone, roughing the leather straps. He came at once to my call, and I held the blade out to him. But what's this? gurgled the gentleman in the chair, his eyes lighting upon Jackalby in the mirror. An apprentice, ton sir. My son strops the razors, my lord, I replied. His keen eyes see imperfections mine cannot. The gentleman smiled, his lips like slugs crawling across an overfurred peach. I too have a keen eye, said the man, and I see your son is undoubtedly an asset to you. Come closer, boy, sharpish now. Jackleby looked to me. By no means was he a boy, having surely as many years as the gentleman himself. But with the sweat creasing down my chest, I scarcely dared argue. It will but delay, I began, but the gentleman abruptly lashed out with his cane, wrapping me firmly on the left kneecap. The bone made a solid thunk, like the thud of a mailed fist on a wooden door. I let out a gasp, but he only smiled. "'It is only reasonable that I inspect the hands that sharpened your blades. Is it not, Tanzer? He peered up at me as though he had never struck me at all. "'They will, after all, lie upon my throat. Is that not reasonable?' I bit back the gasp of pain. "'Very good, sir.' I motioned to Jackalby, who stepped around to face the gentleman in the chair. The gentleman smiled up at him, and I felt my heart sink in my chest. I had seen that smile before, written in his beard, and knew where it led. He reached out to Jackleby and took hold of his hand in those pale gloved fingers. He studied first the palm, then the obverse, examining the cuticles closely, the lines, a small patch of lye dust across the knuckle of Jackalby's ring finger— his inspection continued up onto my son's face, and before he could move, the gentleman laid a pale-gloved hand on his chest. Jackleby jerked back, but the gentleman held him firmly in place. "'I can read your heart, boy, through my hand,' he warbled. "'I see you have a sweetheart. Is that quite right?' Jackleby looked to me, his eyes wide. "'Sir, this is most irregular,' I protested. "'Be quiet, ton sir,' said the gentleman, without turning his head. "'This is between me and your son. "'Boy, I asked you a question.' "'Jackalby turned to him. "'Sir, what question?' "'The gentleman tutted peremptorily, then yanked my son from his feet into an embrace.' There he nuzzled his smooth chin with the bristly hairs at his jaw, grinding as though upon corundum until they drew tiny beads of blood. My son cried out and struggled to escape, but the gentleman braced him tight as a lover, grinding at his chin, speaking as though no untoward deed were done. "'Your sweetheart, boy,' he continued, "'what is her name?' "Uh, "'A melthera,' stammered Jackalby. "'She's a florist's girl.' "'Across the street?' asked the man. Jackalmead nodded, eyes glazing with fear. "'I wager I know her. Is she of green eyes and a gossamer pale complexion?' Jackalmead nodded mutely. "'How darling!' said the gentleman. "'I fancy I will visit with her this afternoon. I may have a proposition for her father.' He released my son. A silent moment passed as Jackleby palmed the blood from his chin, looked at the red upon his fingers, then back at the gentleman with a curious mixture of fear and rage. The man looked from Jackleby to me, then began laughing as though he'd just played the most marvelous practical joke in all of Londinium. "'You see,' he said to me genially, "'I told you I could read the truth in a boy's heart.' perhaps even in a man's. I didn't shy. I knew what this was. I had seen it many times before, the cat toying with his meal. "'I'm sure your lordship can read whatever he so deems,' I said, bobbing my head, handing the razor to my aggrieved son, who dashed off to the nearest wall-strop, blinking back furious tears. The man continued laughing as I laid a hot towel on his throat and brushed the lather across his taut jowls. As I reclined the chair backwards, he burbled throaty chuckles. I have cropped the necks of men before such as him. I have decorticated tyrants and scaled the cheeks of rapists. I know the language of the hair, the weft and web of its growth, and I know what it wants.' The man's hair demanded suffering. It grew in even spreads, dappled with flecks of grey despite his luxurious black scalp, and told of a will to possession, the drive that made the Ant-African peoples a slave race, that made the colonials drive their indigenous forebears into the muck that bent the Abindians double under the yoke of our weighty empire. I knew men like him, I had served them throughout my life, learning when to bow and kneel and avoid becoming the one they took their pleasure in. I had learned so well they never fully knew what I was, they could not see me for my camouflage, and in so doing let me so close that I could have slit open all of their throats had I so wished it. A sound arose from behind, and I knew the hair-seeds of darkness had already taken hold in my son. Jackalby charged, the razor-blade held before him. Of course he did. It was the touch of that hair that turned a key within him. Some quieten at the fear, as I have always done. Some rebel, unwilling to bow their heads and run to their deaths. They become the examples that quiet the rest." The gentleman saw him advancing in the mirror but made no move to escape or defend himself. I watched it happen in the mirror as though it were a thing dreamed of. Yet it was real. Jackalby's razor slapped into the side of the gentleman's neck who only gave a sigh as though at a love pat. No mark was left, no sign of blood, no injury at all. My son stared wildly, struck again but still the blade did not cut. The gentleman gave me a knowing glance in the mirror, desquamated the rapier from its berth in his cane noiselessly, then thrust it over his shoulder without once looking back. The shaft took Jackalby through the mouth, punched up and out of his brain pan. Blood bubbled up over his young white teeth, but his eyes were already dead. His weight sagged, but the man held the rapier steady against his shoulder, and my son's face slid down the blade until his bloody mouth snagged against the chair's leather back. "'Children these days,' said the gentleman conversationally, "'no tolerance for sport at all, have they?' I tried to show my fear. I tried to let him feel my panic at such impossible things. But as ever, my pride shone through." Pride was always my weakness. I merely bowed and nodded my head, and as he looked at me with curious eyes, I knew then that he knew. He knew I saw his hair. He knew that I knew him. Yet he stayed. Perhaps he was curious. They often are. Tan, sir, he said, his voice humming with excitement, lay your blade against my throat. Trembling, I did so. Now shave, man, as close as you can. I laid my blade against his neck and began. My hand shook, but I forced it still. My son's blood licked down the gentleman's rapier, down his poised arm, into a puddle in his lap, and I shaved his neck. I knew it was you, said the gentleman, jutting out his jaw to provide me a better angle. When I heard them speak your name at the opera and speak of your blades, I knew it had to be you at last. I didn't say anything. There was nothing I could say now. Come now, don't be so bitter, he reasoned cheerfully. If you could, we both know you would slice my brains out, just as your dead son attempted. Why this pretense?' No pretense, Lord, I mumbled. I only seek to serve. My son was impudent, I know it. I can't say he deserved all you gave him. But it is not mine to judge, Lord, no, it is mine to shave only. The gentleman guffawed. You think me to believe your pandering? Was it not you with your Lazarus sword who stood before me at Gallipoli and beat back my battalion of the Lance? Was it not you who cut out the black pox I laid upon this stinking city with only a sharpened silver spoon stained with iodine? Would you deny that? I shook my head, and the hairs on his chin continued to pop, each shedding free of his chin and into the foamy lather. I saw anger stirring in his steely eyes. ''Do you honestly think I don't know my brother when I see him? Why don't you weep, Carazas, for another slain son? Why don't you sob for the legion of yours I've sluttered away into the black?'' His lordship speaks in riddles, I murmured, holding, hoping his curiosity would hold him until the end. I know of not what. Bah, he spat, I'll make you remember. I'll gather these hairs, Karazas, and make you swallow them whole. And what then will you do? The black spark will take root within you once more, and from it will grow all kinds of delicious fruit. We will be brothers again, as we once were. I rubbed his chin with a hot towel, scraped the razor's edge across the cleft of his chin, dipped into the bow of his upper lip. Brothers, Lord, I asked, as I dampened the down at the corner of each cheekbone, as I worked the blade around the bone. I never had a brother, only sons. His eyes gleamed with the dancing foils of our conversation. He knew, but still he danced, the cat toying at its meal. They were all the same, all of my fallen brothers. They took joy in pain. Well, you soon shall ride by my side again, brother. You will see sights to burn out men's eyes and learn to love it. The hare speaks, and it will speak to you, I swear it. I worked the blade round the final patch of his cheek and the last lone flecks of hair were bladed away. They slid down the razor's edge in a slurry of watery foam. Finally, I relaxed. It already has, I said. He frowned as though disappointed that I had spoiled his sport. Then you admit you remember our glory days over Pompeii, watching those fools scatter to the burn. I held the blade before his eyes. "'I remember cutting myself free with Artur's blade, Agramar, "'before you broke it on Lesserfer's anvil. "'I remember searching millennia for the secret to its edge. "'I know you remember that day, too, "'the day I cut myself from the weft.' "'He shrugged. "'An aberration. Artur's blade is gone. "'None know the secret to its edge.' For the first time, I smiled. It was a mere reflection of his own. He did not know that I had done the impossible. I found it, Aggramar, here in Londinium. I found it. Agrimar eyed the razor before him, speckled with his own beard stubble, and shrugged. It is but a blade. You can no more cut my skin than I can yours only the hairs may be cut. I shook my head. That is where your misunderstanding lies. I have not cut the hairs from you, as I did not cut them from myself all those years ago. Rather, I have cut you off from the hairs. He scoffed. The movement jogged my son Jackelby on his rapier end and in one rasping motion that sent a welter of blood over his shoulder, he yanked the bloody blade out. My son's head rolled back, his body thumped down to the floor. There is no difference in the two. I ran a finger down the flat of the razor, collecting the reduced lather and its base of small, dark stubble. Each of them sighed as they touched my skin, trembling like wingless flies. I held them out for him to see as each slowly fell silent, diminished, and faded away. He stared at them with the first shades of terror. There is a difference, I said, and I flung the hairs from me with a shake of my wrist. They flew in a clump, landed wetly on the floor, where they lay still and inert. Aggramar stared after them. They do not. Blossom, he asked, they do not take root. I have cut them and you from their source, I said, at your own word, Agrimar, You thought to come here to spread your seed, rather you have been gelded. He stared at my face in the mirror in utter shock. It is impossible, Artur's blade is gone. I turned the straight razor before him, so it flashed in a shaft of light. "'I have a thousand like the Magramar. "'I can grind a thousand more. "'No! "'In moments you will feel the darkness ebbing from you. "'You will remember none of this. "'You will not know me as your brother. "'You will awaken in this chair "'and think yourself a man stricken with the amnes. "'When I tell you I am your father, "'you will believe me.' "'He spun in the chair, "'strove to drive the rapier through my middle.' but the blade slipped off as Jackalby's blade had slipped from his neck. We are yet brothers, I said, smiling on him. You cannot harm me as I cannot harm you. His eyes were clouding already. I could feel the bile leaving him, beginning to fade away. He looked about himself frantically as the last thousand years of memory left him. I don't understand what's happening. You are forgetting, I soothed. You have been cut from the darkness that turned you. I feel so alone, he mumbled, seeming to wilt in upon himself. The rapier fell from his slack hand. Shh, I soothed. All will be well. He closed his eyes. I sighed, content. Another of my brothers have been set free. The man woke in the tonsory and did not know how he had come to be there. "'Aye,' he started to say, but it struck him he had no name. He looked in the mirror facing him and saw a smooth-faced young gentleman looking back, dressed in an expensive grey suit, a copper cane at his waist, a white kerchief set perfectly in his breast pocket. "'Sleeping again, son?' asked an older man in the mirror. "'Have you yet stropped the razors?'
0: And welcome back. The Demon Barber of Londinium is actually... Well, I guess he's not an angel, or at least not anymore. A fallen angel, I guess, that would make him an actual demon. Huh. What's a repentant demon? A risen demon? That doesn't sound quite right. Kind of has a zombie feel to it. An uplifted demon? A demon on the mend? Demon with a heart of gold? Ah... A demon after God's own heart. Hmm. If you have any suggestions on what it should be called, let us know in our forum. Well, here's something else completely demonic. Feedback this week for Ian McHugh's The Navigator in the Sky, read by Darren Kelk. This was the charming mythical story of an older Polynesian fisherman and his granddaughter being hunted by a god. Oddly, not everyone loved this one as much as we did, which is okay, nobody's perfect. Actually, truth be told, it seems like for whatever reason a lot of our listeners had a difficult time getting rooted into this story, be it the names of the characters or the accent of the reader or whatever, but once they did, it seemed to pay off generally. For example, Devoted135 said, I love the reader's voice. It sounded like waves washing over my ears. That did make it a bit hard to follow the actual story, but I feel it was well worth it. Salul had some interesting criticisms in his post about it, and I'm not going to read it all, but you can at our forum. He's got a lot of cool things to say. Uh, Here's what he said regarding the story's culture. There were bits which don't really match up with Polynesian historical values. The gods, on one hand, were far from humanized, much less subject to the kinds of personalized and emotional identities we get here. The ones in the story resemble something more of the Greco-Roman pantheon, Whereas oceanic gods weren't gods in a sort of otherworldly sense, but more like multiple presences that could take different forms, and were all but modeled on human personality. Another detail is the whole family solidarity thing, which is a bit modernistic, and that the relations in the story resemble those of a contemporary nuclear family. In Polynesian culture, it was a rather more extended set of lineage relations and roles which determined people's attitudes to various kin. Moby Click was one of the people who had to restart the story a number of times and said, I found myself repeatedly wondering who was who, what they were running from, and where they were running to. I think a combination of mental preoccupation, the names of the characters, and the way the story flowed so smoothly, combined to let the thing wash over me. Sometimes it's nice when this happens, but this time, I persevered, skipped back a bunch of times, and was glad I did. Stories about family, loyalty, and generations passing on their gifts and knowledge really tug at my heartstrings these days. I like it because I'm at the stage where my wife and I are thinking about having kids, and we have a great extended family with little nephews that I adore, but every time there's a sniff of family peril, I get really emotionally involved. So I love the relationships between the characters here. I also thought the scene with the stars falling was brilliant. The part where Tapa-O dragged and guided the canoe through the water was beautiful, a perfect fit for the themes of the story, and a great metaphor for how the older generations can guide and support their descendants. Otter Boy said, Long time listener, first time poster. I really enjoyed this story and found myself unexpectedly moved by the end when the narrator was looking into his wife's face after his long journey. Though it seems unfair that the granddaughter would have to be left behind on the mainland, it makes sense that things won't be fair when you have gods directly intervening in your lives. Well, thank you very much for those comments. It's always intriguing to see what people think of the stories we run here, and you can let us know what you thought of this story by visiting forum.escapeartist.net. And if you like what we're doing, please consider visiting podcastle.org and making a donation. Here's the truth of it, folks. We pay our authors 100 bucks for each story we feature here, unless it's in the public domain, of course. And that can add up to a lot. $400 every month, sometimes 5 not including flash fiction. And we rely on your donations so we can pay our authors and continue to bring you the best fantasy fiction we can get our hands on. Now, we understand not everyone can afford to donate, and if that's you, that's all right. But please consider blogging, tweeting our stories, writing a review on iTunes, or just telling your friends about us. Telling your friends about us is way awesome. Thanks. Well, that was our show for the week. On behalf of everyone here at PodCastle, Anne Leckie, Peter Wood, Anna Schwind, and myself, thank you so much for letting us share another story with you. We'll be back next week when a certain sorceress makes her debut here at PodCastle. Marla something or other. Until then, remember, the hair speaks. And I'm pretty sure it's saying, we'll see you in a week. PodCastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of PodCastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Tennessee Williams said, Kill all my demons and my angels might die too.